Wait for it. Wait for it. Finally, we're live. I never know how long that's going to take. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blaze podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we're going to let our guests uh, introduce themselves. We're going to start this time with the gentleman first because Miss Rebecca has been here before. But uh, Mr. Jonathan Harden, can you introduce yourself to our viewers and listeners? Hey, I'm Jonathan. I am uh, the runner for Sojourners Awake. Uh, we produce little publications and teach youngsters how to play tabletop RPGs. Always good. Do you have any specific system you teach them or you go sort of more general? Um, we started out with D&D 5e. We've switched over to index card RPG. And um, I've also written a little engine of my own called Brutal Survivor, which is a 3D6 system. What Index card RPG? I don't think I've ever heard of that one. Is that specifically designed for kids? Uh, index card RPG, not designed for kids. It was fashioned by Runehammer. And it's a D20 system, six stats, uh, very applicable to d and I, I like to call it, it's what you think D&D would be uh, if it had all the, had no crunch at all. Uh, it's a very fast paced system. It's very easy to pick up. So I use it to teach newbies to the game. Cool. I've never heard of it. And uh, what about your system? What's that? What's that like since we got you here? Yeah, so I, I met Rebecca and we worked together on her book and she asked me to design a RPG engine that would be uh, applicable to her genre of science fiction, weird West fantasy. And so I used a 3D6 system, roll under, and uh, every attack hits kind of game. So it, it's very quick, fast paced, and, and very brutal, hence the name Brutal Survivor. <laughs> So do you do you prefer just in general terms, and then we'll dive into the the game you designed for her a little bit later in the interview. Do you prefer the fast paced sort of um, role play, less crunchy style game yourself, or is, I mean, do you have a preference? I may have lost you there for a bit, but I think I heard you say, "Do I prefer fast paced games?" Yeah. Yeah, I I like to. I mean, I I like story driven games. Uh, I tell my players, you know, I, I prefer to be emotionally moved by your characters' actions and decisions. Um, so I don't typically have a, a very mechanical mind as it is. So um, I'm very uh, I like a lot of literary in my games. So I try to keep the dice and the rules down to a minimum, and we focus on um, more of a what would you call like a storytelling game. Okay. All right. And uh, if you don't remember, Miss R.H. Snow, Rebecca, you were here before talking about your book, The Watcher of the Damned. But if they don't remember you, can you tell them who you are? Hi. I'm now coming to you for my boudoir bodaciousness and my double white of doom. And I am the three times Prometheus Award nominated author of Watcher of the Damned, which is a sci-fi Western saga with romance and pew-pews and chupacabras and cool cryptids and everything in it. But most of all, it's a story about freedom. And we have six books that are already out there. That's The Watcher of the Damned, Watcher, the first series. Uh, we now have the second series, Watcher of the Damned, Wanderer, Under 
production right now. I just got finished with an edit on the first book of that, Trail of Travail. And we also have in production the third and final series in the arc, which is Watcher of the Damned, Warlord. And there is a fourth arc to the series as well, and it is the TTRPG Complete. And it will be, uh, it's being spearheaded by Jonathan Harden, who as you've met right now. And he is uh, helping me develop this world. So when I finish the series, it will not be the end of the series for me. Instead, it's the beginning of the opening of the TTRPG world. But we also have a module and a world that we set up, which is System and Star. And Jonathan, in fact, helped me create that. And he was so fantastic with it and created this wonderful brutal survival system, which is, I love it because it's not covered under OGL. Yay, good job. And that was before that all became a big thing. So I feel really great about it because I don't have to be afraid of having something come in to smoosh my content. Uh, so we created that in mind. Uh, he actually started it with me so we would have something that would come out in between series. And we're going to be actually creating a new module here pretty soon. But we do have our first module with System and Star. Right, give me a second. I will put you on the solo screen. And here we That's have. Pretty. Isn't that beautiful? Look at that. That's my art. Great job with these. And we have two components presently. We're going to have a third one pretty soon. I've got the new module coming out and I'm going to be getting Jonathan started on that and he's fast turnarounds. So we have System and Star. The first one is Escape from Purgatory. And this world takes place in book five of Watcher of the Damned, which is the Purgatory Papers. Right before that book opens up, we have all of those guys. And it comes with our own NBC and character guide for uh, non-player characters that if you'd like to do it, it is Purgatory Paper, which has all of their dossiers and their art in it. And we did all the art with that. And he did all of the um, the setup for us. And because I'm an illustrator, I ended up making so many character sheets that we ended up with that book. And that's how we get started with it. And so we've got that already underway. We're going to be having the monster manual coming out soon, which is going to be called the Beastier, uh, sort of the Wildlands. Um, and uh, we're going to be making that just here and probably in the next three months, I'll be getting that out. So I'm kind of excited about all of that. Uh, this is the first time that we've really gotten a chance to write a series that is being created specifically to be made into a tabletop RPG. I haven't met many people that do that from the very beginning. And so we were really excited. To and we've been actually getting some attention from some people. And I'll, I'll let you talk first. And then we'll go into some people that have been talking to us that are kind of well-known in the industry. And in fact, I had just talked to Hart, uh, Jonathan about it yesterday and sent you guys both the links to that particular interview because that's kind of a big deal for us because when you get that sort of attention, you're like, wow, you really think this would make a great tabletop RPG? And I was like, and he said, yeah. And I was like, I'm going to tell everybody. And he's like, go for it. So <laughs> I'm excited. All righty. And uh, with that being said, the next part of the introduction, dear listeners, how we first found them. So uh, way back um, when I mentioned to Declan Finn that we had a string of author cancellations at this past summer. Um, and so he reached out to a bunch of people he knew. And uh, at that point, we conducted that interview with Madam Snow way back in <clears throat> episode 186. So it's been a, it's been a hot minute. Uh, we kept in touch. So when she launched this RPG, we, we decided to have her back. And here we are. But Rebecca, you answered these questions last time. So rather than bore everybody with you repeating the answers, we're going to let Mr. Jonathan answer. So Jonathan, are you ready for this? The religion questions. I'm ready. Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? Firefly. Okay, why is that? It's a good answer, but why? It... Uh, I... Man... <laughs> I know I put I you on the spot. Know that 
it was definitely intuitive. Just uh, I, I tried watching Star Trek and the pacing wasn't great for me. Although I did, I did appreciate the, the illusion warfare that most of uh, the, you know, the, the heroes encountered fireflies. It's pulpy. It's a lot more pulpy than Star right. Wars. Star Wars is a little too romantic. Okay, that's fair. Uh, Firefly is a little more, yeah, yeah. It's a little more gritty, down to earth. The characters are more, um, they're more, uh, yeah, grittier and ho- and homelier. And I think Star Wars is a little more of a rom- romantic saga. Okay, I'll take that answer. All right, and because we are polytheistic over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast, Game of Thrones, The Wheel of Time, or Willow? Willow, because I watched it as a kid, and I haven't seen the other two. Oh, <laughs> All right. Fair, fair. All right. So we uh, we here at the Blasters Blades, we do love both the fantastical and the scientific, Jonathan, but what was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy? Fantasy. Uh, do you remember what your first uh, memory of engaging in fantasy, um, is it literature, cartoons? What was it? I remember I had a vinyl record of The Hobbit. Okay. Uh, where where it encouraged you to turn the page, and that was the first time I read it. And then I got sick one day, and I stayed home from church and watched Legend with Tom Cruise and Tim Curry. Good movie. All right. Yeah. So what is it? Uh, what is it about the the wider umbrella of speculative fiction that you love so much? I think fantasy, um, as opposed to being a way to escape the world, it actually helps us deal with our shadows in our real world. Um, just like the never ending story, there's kind of two characters within us. There is the, the one we see the persona, and then there is the dark, the, you know, not the necessarily evil side, but just the side of us that's in the shadow and fantasy has a way of showing us that side of ourselves. Okay. So we didn't know we were bringing on a philosopher, but I like it. I did. So, <laughs> so how did your love of speculative fiction transition into you creating content in this space? Because you are a game designer. I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? So how did your love of speculative fiction writ large transition into you deciding to create content in this space and in, in a career in, in game design? I, I kind of ran into people like Rebecca in the TTRPG community, and I would hear them talk about their specific worlds and i found that i had a way of organizing all the thoughts and feelings these particular authors and creators had about their worlds and i tried really hard to protect what was most important while trimming away the fat of what was not important that way it could be applicable to any game master or player um but i I love writing too i love i love communicating through the written word Okay. So do you think there are any um, moments from your real life that uh, shaped you as the way you create games and tell stories? Yes. So when I was 17, I took a creative writing class outside of my school. And this teacher just, I mean, she just blew up in my world into understanding how to help another person see a perspective. And it didn't have to be my perspective. I just had to shape the world through imagery and uh, descriptive writing. 
And I found that I could not get enough of that. So I began to write feverishly as a older high school student. And then I gave it up and I went to work and became an adult. And I worked myself to death until I was like 35. And then I crashed and burned, lost my job and researched the game called Dungeons and Dragons and tried to use it as a homeschooling supplement for my kids and realized, oh my gosh, this is what I used to do when I was a kid. I would just gather my brothers and sisters around and tell these stories and make up names for all my toys and their their backstories. And I realized that's, this is what I need to get back into um, if I want to retain any level of my soul. Okay, that was a leap of faith for you too, because uh, I yeah. imagine that was a hard sell for your for your wife. Yeah, I mean it was. I mean we like a, we crashed and burned together. It was pretty pretty hard losing the job and everything. But um, it since then it's it's been about um, being a little more conservative with our time and energy and money, so we can focus on being a little bit more creative and you know just getting getting clever and creative with how we spend our time and, uh, you know, volunteer for resources rather than get paid for resources. That's big. Okay. So let's transition away from the creative side and talk about things from the fan angle. And this question is for both of you, Rebecca and Jonathan, but have you had anybody cosplay your characters or your made fan art for you guys yet? Um, I've, I've had fan art and actually I was really blessed because I'm on uh Ron and quarter uh, fan edition. And that's Chester Busby's channel. And there's two of them. There's actually Blacklist Universe with Mike S. Miller, who's a well-known uh, comic book artist uh, and does fantastic work and uh, currently actually has uh, a project on Indiegogo. So go check out Mike S. Miller while you're at it. And he had, I started off with him and also on Chester's uh, weekly ones and they're sort of back to back. And the I'm not the world's best artist. And Jonathan can tell you that I'm, I'm, an, I'm an illustrator. I do okay, but I'm not a big artist like these other people. While I'm on uh, Drawn and Quartered, I meet these incredible artists. Well, they wanted to do the book. And I was like, hey, that's really awesome. So we got the book on there. And I had Alan Alonzo. I've got Eric Hawkins. I've got, oh, my gosh, there's so many people. Uh, Amy and Melissa Lester, who are game designers. And um, uh, Armoron, who does these fantastical pinup girls. And and just a whole host of, of people. And I'll actually, I, I won't list them all. I don't have them in front of me because they're all my friends. Uh, and um, with Solarian Sun, I've got uh, just a whole group of people that are on weekly. And sometimes we have like 15 people. Well, a whole bunch of them showed up that night and they did the pictures for the book. And these are like comic book artists. They're actual real, you know, artists. And so I ended up with these fantastic pictures. And uh, and they did them just, it's just voluntary. They just come on and they'll draw your stuff. And I was like, holy cow, y'all. And so uh, to see it come to life in their eyes, I had drawn my own pictures of what I thought they would look like. And it ended up going into the book because it's sort of it's sort of like Jack Kirby, Garth Williams, and, and they sort of put a little thing together <laughs> and had a baby. But these were just fantastic. Some of these were the Frazetta level of art. And um, I was so humbled by the, the offerings that they gave me that I've actually used them with my marketing. I've asked for permission for that. And, you know, when I want to show something that this is how this character really looks and they just captured that essence so incredibly. And to, to have that, it's just amazing to see it. Uh, and I think that uh, the ones that come out of the 
the wild are the ones you love the best though. And that's something I haven't experienced yet because kids are the ones that are most likely to do fan art. Actually the ones that are young. And we talked about Jonathan, when you talk about younger ones, they actually are a lot more likely to go here. I made this thing for you. And my book is more of an adult book. I probably in PG 13 category. So I told the librarians in my County, don't you let kids have this unless you know they're old enough to read it. So, so I won't be getting any kids art yet that's the main thing i'm gonna probably uh, but i have had a lot of people you know the, turn in stuff but they've all been like in my circle of professional artists that are just like hey here's your character so it's kind of a different experience what about you jonathan i have not had the privilege of anyone cosplaying or doing character art but one thing i do like to do is from the kids that take my classes, I hire them to do the art for any of the publications uh, that I personally pr produce. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of a, just a way of, um, and I, I do pay them as well. So I talk to their parents and just organize a way to pay them for their, their stock art and, and character art. That is so cool. It is. Um, so, wow. Okay. That's, that's kind of cool. I don't think I've ever heard anybody do that, but has anybody asked for your autograph of your stuff yet, um, Jonathan or Rebecca? Uh, I, I have had, I, I think I told this story last time, so I'll keep it short, but I had a lady that was over at a booth and I've, I've done this more since, but um, when I've been to the cons, yes, people asking for it, but you're sort of kind of expecting that one because you're at a con and you're like, oh, my book's here. So when somebody comes up and says, oh, you signed this. You don't know if it's because they know you or they just think maybe later you'll be famous and they want to have it. But having one in the wild where it was actually in my home base and a lady that I, I had known, but I didn't realize she was reading my books. And it's kind of humbling because you're like, yeah, I live in a small, small county. We've only got 20,000 people in the whole county. And that's not even town. That's the whole county. So everybody knows everyone. So you're not going to swing a cat without hitting somebody you know. So I was, she was over on the booth and she was selling other things. They were doing it for the volunteer fire department. I've got your back. I want you to sign all these copies. And she had bought the whole series. I mean, the whole thing. And she wanted me to write it for her husband. And I was so excited that I put a whole inscription inside each one. And I made a poem at the front of each of the six books. So if you put all the six books together and you put all the words together, it would make a poem to her husband that said she loved him. Oh, that's kind of sweet. I didn't know she was going to do that. I had no idea that she was a reader. And I was like, and it makes you realize that people, when you, it's one thing when you think people out there are going to read your stuff. It's another thing entirely when you realize that people who know where you live are going to read your stuff and maybe complain to your husband about your language if you're not careful. Because <laughs> I'm a preacher's wife. So I got to be good all the time. So, yes, I was very excited that she came up. And I've had I've had it at the con since then, but that was my favorite, my first one. So I, I was really excited. Okay. Have you guys spotted anybody out in public uh, reading your books or Jonathan playing one of your, your games? Uh, <laughs> not playing one of my games, uh, but what we do is I produce the games and then we run youth retreats twice a year. And I will distribute the tabletop setting for the game masters that we hire to run the little retreats for the youth, youth kids. So that's, that's, that's about, cool. the, yeah, that's about the extent that anyone's actually used anything. All right. What about you, Rebecca? You seen anybody out in public reading one of your books? Uh, actually, yeah, actually you had somebody uh, come up to me, usually it's on fire scenes. So that's the problem I've got is that when I'm out, it's usually because something really bad is happening. So as a result, there won't be somebody like reading 
be like a tornado just touched down or something. Cause I'm the Skywarn uh, coordinator for my County. And so when I do that, I'm like, Oh my gosh, there, there won't be anybody reading probably unless the book's like torn away and thrown into the dirt or something. But in this case, I had a uh, person come up and they were like, I've read your book. And it was one of the firefighters on scene. And I was so excited. I was excited. Like, I was like, I was like, so I was like, it made my day. So, and then I had to go back to cleaning up stuff, but, but it was fun. Cool. Um, I know the answer to this one is no for you, uh, Jonathan, because we, we did it in the pre-show. But Rebecca, have you had any weird or funny interactions with your, uh, your readers since you started writing? Uh, yes, I think the biggest problem for me, I've got it. All right. Sorry about that slight glitch, people. Uh, we had some technical difficulties. Uh, the young Miss Rebecca is in tornado season, so she had to go answer an alarm just to make sure her house wasn't going all uh, uh, Wicked Witch of the West kind of on her. So she's back. She's safe. And we will resume this uh, this interview. So, Rebecca, you were just telling us, I just asked you about uh, any weird or funny interactions with fans since you started writing. Uh, yeah, it was uh, when I actually had a firefighter on scene. So we had it, uh, some scenes for most of the time when I'm out, it's because something bad has happened. Uh, and, and so I don't really go out where people are just sitting and reading. And and so we're out in a pasture or whatever and trying to look at where a tornado has touched down or where there's been a fire or something else. And one of the firefighters came up to me and started saying that he had read my book and he was so excited. And uh, then I also had some of the deputies say the same thing. And so I was really excited because that's the kind of demographic I love. Is uh, the, I, I have all different kinds of readers from all different areas. But when you have people that are in the business of saving and rescuing and they're, they're real life heroes and they're wanting to read about my heroes, then I'm like, oh, that's so exciting. So I, I, I geeked out for a little bit, yes. Okay. So this is the part of the interview where we talk about what you both have written and or created. We're going to start with you, Rebecca, because ladies first, can you give us the Reader's Digest version of your uh, body of work? So what do you, what are you famous for? Yeah, <laughs> famous. Uh, yeah, well, I'm famous actually for being the preacher's wife here in Limestone County and I want coordinator. But uh, when I, before I was, I was, when I was action girl, I did a whole bunch of other things and I was always into everything and I was always out and I was always working on fires and being a volunteer firefighter and everything. Then I got sick and I was like, well, I can't do anything because I developed a condition called FMD, which means that I might get a stroke if I go out and try to put out a fire and people were like, you can't do it. And so I was like, okay, I have to sit around. I'm really bored. You can only play Fallout so many times on bullet sponge mode before you get really, really, really super bored and you just decide you're going to quit. So I decided instead, the story came to me, this image of a man chained at a gate. And he was having this vision of a child in his mind. And the world in which he was living was so strange and different to me. And this is 2018. But there had been a giant virus that had swept the world and killed people and, and fertility rates were dropping and people were there were there were no women practically left except for a very few and there were no children at all and this vision came to me and i knew the beginning and the end of the middle of the story and everything in between and i knew i had to write it uh fast forward if you ever have seen the george guidestones or anything about it then you realize this is a book actually about a situation what if those those dreams and hopes that corporations had for us became real what happens when the people who think they know better than us really get their plans really get their way and then screw it up so badly that nobody can fix it and that is the premise of the story of the world of a destroyed world where uh higher minds and intelligent people decided that they were going to fix everything for us and they end up ruining it instead and how did those people 
how do we deal with it as uh, as a person who's caught in the crosshairs? Uh, by the time I got finished, it had gone from being science fiction to being a documentary. Uh, and we ended up with a, a virus called the pandemic. We ended up with people being uh, pushed into situations they didn't want to be pushed into. Uh, a lot of people's lives have been affected uh, in a very negative way by uh, the pandemic and the uh, planning that went into it. And so this world suddenly became very relevant. Uh, to everybody who was reading it, especially in the, the way of how we feel like we're caught up in a system that we can't seem to fight, uh, an overwhelming arc of, of, of perhaps great ideas that suddenly turn against us. And, and moving against a corporate entity doesn't really feel like you have a right to have autonomy. Uh, how do we fight against that in, in challenging times? And so we have this world, it's a beautiful world. Uh, the, the earth is, is recovering. If you've ever seen pictures of Angor Wat where the earth is it up in these you know trees and vines and everything it comes back covering the hand of man and yet that hand is still there and we are part of the environment so how that environment reacts without us in it all the time to maintain it what happens to a mine when it catches on fire and there's nobody there to put out the fire anymore uh what happens to buildings and roads and people when we don't have maintenance and infrastructure what happens when an emp takes out so much of our digital world that we no longer can function even at a basic electronic level and so that's the world they're living in but they have knowledge of digital they have knowledge of electric they remember what life was like before but you've been knocked back to the bronze age and you're having to rebuild and so in this world that's where we find the watcher in basically texas bronze age and he is living in central texas where i live and i actually wrote real world scenes real world places into this story using google earth to map how long it would take to get from point a to point b where he might encounter things but we also have this devastated world that has genetic modifications and uh all of those things that the corporations are trying to bring to us now with transhumanism and everything and so we have the development of fantastic creatures uh they call them chupacabras so they call them feathered serpents or squeeches uh biggins things like this that are reminiscent of all of the all those cryptids that we love in our mythos, especially in Texas, where we do actually have, believe it or not, yes, there was a Bigfoot sighting. It was in my, almost in my backyard. That was back in the 1970s. And my husband's still pretty freaked out about it when he found out that we actually are living like supposedly where Bigfoot was actually seen. Um, and so I've written these into the story, those Texas, the Texas lore and the Texas uh, culture of cryptids and monsters along with real monsters that we have in the story which would be for instance bears uh boars we have hogs you wouldn't believe what a hog can do to a person um and we also have uh cougars which i actually just had a cougar kill on my land yesterday uh, <laughs> i lost a goat uh and so all of these real life uh uh hazards that are, exist in texas and the lore of texas and the, just the incredible danger and beauty of it, the weather is all woven into the story with this backdrop of people against corporate overlords and how they're going to try to fight back and how they're going to be free. And into it, yes, there is an element of romance. I wanted romance in my, I like romance in my stories, but I, I don't like romance like a lot of people write it. I'm not a romance reader. That's nothing against people who write romance. I'm, I'm just, I like my romance to be more about, he was shooting his gun in Elder Tide. I like that part. That's really cool, you know? And so I wanted, you know, it should have some sort of pew pew element to it. And so uh, that is a, something that's a little unusual. I was concerned about it, but after I've gotten the reviews back, especially from some really high level readers, I 
I've been really pleased with the response, especially for men. So that's the world we're in, a world where men are in charge of pretty much everything because women no longer really exist. And in fact, they really can't even tell you what a woman is. Isn't that great? I wrote this to be science fiction. I was supposed to be fiction, y'all. And so we end up with a world where uh, just trying to find what a real woman is out there maybe would be really difficult. And um, and that world leads us to the the question of who is human? What is human humanity? And do we okay. have? What about you, Jonathan? What uh, what kind of game systems have you created? I'm most proud of the Sojourner's Guide to Bonzaro. Um, okay. After yeah, after a couple of years of working with my guys on Thursdays and then my uh, teenagers class, uh, it started out with just playing simple, you know, simple villages and cities and dungeons, and then players would ask more questions about the world. And so I set out Get to create, set out to create a document that if maybe it was it was found, you know, 500 years from now, uh, someone could believe this was the origin of the universe. And so I, I really enjoyed creating a mythology in helping the sojourners, my players, uh, find their way through the world that I had created. Sojourner's Guide to Bonsarola was the most favorite thing I had written. Okay. And uh, we're going to do things a little bit differently today, dear listener, dear viewer. The, uh, the commercial today is brought to you by the Watcher of the Damned. TTRPG. So, uh, Jonathan, you're going to do an ad read for your game. Can you tell us a little bit about it real quick? Yeah, The Watcher of the Damned, written by R.H. Snow, is a wonderful book uh, set in a weird West science fiction fantasy. And we designed a game together with uh, myself and Sojourners Awake. It's a 3D6 quick action game called Brutal Survival RPG. And it is compatible with Watcher of the Damned. If you're a fan of Watcher of the Damned and you love the series, you'll love playing in the world. If you are a fan of gritty Western style uh, uh, with guns and explosives, you will enjoy this RPG as well. So I would check it out today. All right. Thank you for sticking with us through that brief commercial interlude, dear listener. He was succinct and to the point, and I can appreciate it. Um, but we obviously came here to talk about Escape from Purgatory, a brutal survivor system RPG. So, like, what was the obviously we know the premise started and it was episode 186, so we'll link that in the show notes, um, with the, the game. But, like, what was the premise as far as or not premise? What was the goal when you started creating this game? Like, did you have anything specific in mind? I wanted to honor uh, R.H. Snow's work. Uh, as, be as best as possible so that anyone familiar with the book would enjoy it and find it realistic, but also compatible with anyone who was just interested in playing the game itself. So it was, it was a, the goal was to set out to put just enough lore to tease the readers, but not to overwhelm new players. Okay. So uh, for the second, before we dive too deeply and we want to look at that glorious image, which we have, uh, we like to sometimes leave the, the image up if we're running into a situation where the guest has bad low bandwidth. Uh, so we figured that would be today. But uh, you've been looking at the cover for the, the game. What is the story of that art? I believe that came from you. Is that correct, Rebecca? Yes. Actually, uh, this is from the uh, series itself. You have two uh, striving entities. You have the system and the star. The system is represented by the eight-pointed mandala. 
which was created by the corporation for We Speaks, uh, the One World, One Plan. Uh, and uh, they had their overarching idea of a world united through all common beliefs and everything is wiped away and they would create their own lore and their own God and their own image and that they would be able to save the earth by telling people exactly what to do. Then you have the star, which is the five-pointed star of freedom, which has been used throughout history as a symbol of freedom. And it is resurrected by the damned, which are the survivors who have been left behind by the mistakes made by We Speaks Corporation in their attempt to take over the world. And so you have these two striving entities. And in this picture, it uh, they merge to create all-seeing eye of the state that is attempting surveillance through technology and those who live below the radar because they're just outside of technology's reach. And those two worlds coming together uh, in a clash. Uh, and so that's what we wanted to portray with System of Star. And my artist came up with it, Laura R. Morris. She did an absolutely fantastic job. And when she merged them together, she said, sideways, it makes an eye. And I was like, that's cool. So that's how we ended up with that <laughs> picture. Okay. All right, so uh, Jonathan, since you wrote the core rulebook, and one is is the core rulebook available or just the one shot? It is the the core rulebook is also available if you go to my website sojournersawake.com forward slash shop. You can purchase just brutal survivor RPG, and I describe that as like if you want to play like a zombie apocalypse or escape with a modern feel with pistols, uh, chainsaws, or play in the wild west of the watcher of the damned you can also play in that as well and hopefully it's compatible for any kind of genre that involves gritty survivor games um do you need to buy the core rulebook if you buy the the one shot to play her game no i if you buy the uh one shot the the rule set is in the one shot as well okay so make it easy for everybody and don't require them to buy a uh a la carte bunch of books, a la GURP style. Okay, yeah. I like it. <laughs> I love so I do too. I mean, I, I've played it. It's a little confusing for for noobs, and I ended up finding other systems I like better. But like, I like the the versatility for those that are so inclined. But when you don't know what you're doing, that wall of books that they say you need to buy can get a little intimidating. Yeah. Well, your, your wallet will thank you if you find a cheaper system. Well, that's kind of what we. Were doing now. And Jonathan really opened my eyes to that, you know, that you, you put it in and it, it comes out, they can buy the module and it's all there. If they want the NPC uh, book, that's fine. But the NPCs that they can use in this one little module, just as it, the module itself is introductory to the world. You can, you could even play this world and, and Jonathan and I've worked on that. The eventual goal is to have it where the world itself is what's being played and the character and, and a player can come in and say, I want to play my area and they can do their own thing. But in the one shots they buy it, it's all there. And that includes everything you need to play that one little game. So, and he was really great about saying, I want to make sure that this is affordable for people, that this is affordable for players and that they can put it together and throw it down and, and play the whole thing and, and not have to go out and spend a whole lot of money doing it. Okay. So uh, Jonathan, what would your 30 second elevator pitch be for first for the rules? Well, you did the rule system for the actual one shot. For the one shot, it's a very streamlined adventure in which the motivation for the quest is kind of built in. Uh, the As players, you want to escape and you want to get to outside the city. And so there's little prompts and NPCs that can drive the players towards the adventure and completion. So it's really not about like 
um, what the players will do, but how will they do it? And most of all, will they survive? Hopefully I built the game so that it's, again, pretty gritty and uh, engaging in combat is just uh, involves a series of D6s knocking down hit points. So a gunshot can be fatal um, or it can be just glancing blow. Um, and that was, that was thinking like when I play Risk with my son, uh, the armies are kind of whittled down. I was kind of trying to go for that vibe of like two armies competing for uh, D6 hit points. Um, so it's a pretty fast paced game. I think you could probably play through, you could probably play through it in like one night and just getting through that one little module and uh, have a good time just being silly and hooting and hollering like a bunch of cowboys. <laughs> okay. Are the pew pews required uh, for players, you know, do the rootin' tootin' cowboy stuff going on. You get extra points for that. <laughs> I think if the game master honors it, I'm pretty sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, I, we, we like kind of look up to the game master in some places where, you know, Oh, you could have them find this or have them find that. We're not, we're not dictators. So we know that somebody playing it might go, I really want the guns in the in world. The guns are kind of hard to come by in the city. They're easy to come by out once you get outside. Uh, and so getting outside the city means that you have this whole world where you can shoot stuff and do cool things. But I think we're, we're all bat oriented at the beginning. <laughs> Baseball. Okay. <bat> is- <laughs> so what can you tell us about the character, the characters and the character sheets? Like, you know, obviously people are familiar with the idea that you've got various stats from hit points to charisma, to intelligence and wisdom. Like what's involved in this specific system, the brutal engine. Go ahead, Jonathan. You're the master. Oh, on the- okay. You're the man. Well, it, yeah, just the three D six system rolling under, and um, like like Rebecca said, you know, picking up little weapons like spiked baseball bats, um, coming up with clever ways to uh, either swing from a chandelier or jump across a bridge, things like that. Um, one of the things I designed with the player classes, although they're not really classes, they're kind of like archetypes. Um, you get like features like I think one was called like iron stomach. You can eat anything and it can count as a ration, give you some health back. Another one was like tuck and roll uh, this specific character archetype. Anytime they're knocked flat on their back, they can make an, a free attack um, to kind of characterize again, that pulpy um, Indiana Jones kind of feel. Okay. So there are any actual characters stats like like that or is it mostly just a, a try fail series of, of roles with your d6s uh there are four little archetypes you could pick from um trying to go with like the classic you know tank uh damage per second uh, utilitarians there's no spell cast or anything involved like that but um i think i designed one of the characters to have a mind for technology so they're they're more likely to be able to use um, technology like radios and uh, just all, or any kind of like tools you could use in the in the system. So you run a camps for teaching uh, young people how to get into RPGs to spread the hobby, which one I think is highly commendable. But so so you're familiar with a lot of the systems. What do you think sets your system apart from all the others in the crowded fields that you're competing against? I think with Brutal Survivor, it's um, it was specifically designed for 
someone who doesn't have a D20. I mean, if you just have the 3D6, you can use that and have a good time playing, uh, which I found that, you know, a lot of people new to the hobby, they might just have some Yahtzee dice. And so I wanted to just remove, remove that barrier just by having the D6 available. Um, I think that this game should be played very quickly. <laughs> so the idea of playing eight hours around the table might not be appealing to some, but playing an introductory game of 30 minutes surviving some kind of attack or encounter, that might be appealing to a new player just to get the uh, get bitten by the TTRPG bug. Now, is this um, system, um, and specifically the Watcher of the Damned, is it purely theater of the mind, or do you need like miniatures and um, little model set pieces, or can you combine the two? Uh, yeah, thank you. I think it's heavily theater of the mind. Uh, there are very, okay. very few mechanics regarding movement and space and time. Okay. So I, I tend to use the uh, the fig little figures in the... Uh, creative use of whatever even a sponge is suddenly a mountain kind of thing for mm. uh for the sand table or the the world where they're they're engaging but that's more so the players can visualize it i don't do the full war game where each hex is so far apart so for you it sounds like you approach it that way if you want to use it to visualize you can but it's not required right yeah exactly okay. i mean if you're a game master that is more inclined to use space and time you can definitely use that uh but it's not built into the system. Okay. Um, so this is for you, Rebecca. Um, we've obviously, and I'll link to episode 186 where you've talked about it, but can you give us sort of the, a little bit of the reader's digest about the world where the one shot takes place? Cause obviously the world itself is huge, but, but narrowing it down to where the action for this one shot takes place. Can you tell us a little bit about that? All right, sorry about that technical glitch, dear listener. Uh, we're going to blame, I don't know, somebody. Insert bad guy of the week, and uh, I'll repeat the question for you, Rebecca. So what can you tell us about the world where, I mean, obviously we've talked about one eight, episode 186, linked in the show notes, the whole world where the novels take place. But what can you tell us about the the world where the story that is the um, the one shot takes place? The one shot takes place at a specific point in time right between books uh, four and five where we are and we encounter the characters in purgatory and all of the setup is in place for you to meet these wonderful characters if you want, or you can put the world as it is. And the one shot is designed to just sort of introduce you to the world, let you get your feet wet. If you didn't want to have to come up with creating your own uh, dungeon or your own system that you could just sort of step in and experience the world a little bit through the eyes of somebody who's already written some things. And then you can say, Hey, I want to explore more. And um, so we set it up with that in mind. It is a very gritty, uh, there, it's a world that has known technology, but it does not have a lot of access. There are some people who do have access to technology. And if you've ever watched Witch, actually, then you know that technology is magic. Yay. And so um, we do have that sort of, as you, the wizards are actually technological and so there's are ways to get some of the devices that still work and the players have to find that. They have to find those wizards out there who may still have access to the servers and the networks and things like that. Uh, and so it sort of blurs the line between cyberpunk and uh, tech. But the interesting thing about this world, I believe really is the fact that people have had technology and lost it. So now you have this sort of uh, this gritty world where you're trying to find a weapon. The town itself of Purgatory has decided 
they wanted gun control, so they've made it hard for their uh, characters to get a hold of items, and they characters are going to have to be very um, resourceful in finding those weapons and getting a hold of them. And of course, there's a lot of things to access. This is a town, so it has dumps and bad places to go and uh, abandoned parks. Uh, there's a lot of rundown and rusting things. It would be, I, I think the best description of it, I really love this one, was that it's Fallout of Fallout was pretty. Uh, the Probably the thing, Honest Hearts DLC, Fallout of New Vegas, where it was so beautiful and yet you had this decaying world and people left behind that don't really know what happened to them. They only know something bad took place uh, and they're trying to rebuild. And so that's the world that we're in. And so you have a town of people who are very hard scrabble. Uh, mutated from their illness. They're very strong, very uh, tough. Women have to hide out in this world. Women, can, uh, we do have female players. They actually disguise themselves as men so they could pass among the groups unnoticed. There is one notable exception in the group uh, that will be met with an NPC. Uh, it's Delisha. But, and that's an interesting story and you'll have to play to find out. But because the world is so so rough, and it can be very difficult for players that look smaller or more delicate that we have a way for them to hide as they move around amongst their other people. And so this, this world uh, has a strange urban-rural interface. <clears throat> and that's the kind of the thing I love about it the most, that you can actually go to the dump, you can find something, construct a weapon if you wanted to. You have a chance to find old cast-off uh, sports equipment and put it on or whatever, and now you've got armor. Uh, and uh, if any kind of equipment that you would have lying around after a major disaster, that we wanted them to be able to find it and see it and to be able to utilize that in their escape uh, from purgatory. Right? Okay. And then maybe take it out with them into the wildlands. And the wildlands are the, the wild areas left behind. So are there maps in this, uh, this one-shot of the areas in question? Yes. And Jonathan did a great, uh, he did a fantastic job with this for me because I am what I would always have called, even though I played for a long time, I'm a blast from the past and I'm a cat gamer in the sense that I like my DM to say, okay, go do this thing. And then we go explore, we go play. I love the tabletop of the action. And Jonathan really helped me to not make this into a railroad thing. And so, but at the same time, he was like, you're going to want a map for this. You're going to need these things. And so we drew, yes, we have maps. And he was instrumental in helping me wrap my head around what kind of style we wanted to do. And maps are, are helpful for exploration, but they're maybe not necessary, but they are included. They're in the one shot. So what style did you end up going with for the maps? Just line drawing or did you make it colored or? <laughs> I guess the best thing to say is that it looks like the characters drew them themselves. I think, I don't know, what would you say? Uh, there's, there's one that looks like it was drafted by a, a um, a draft artist, but the the others are pretty much what you would find scribbled on a napkin in a bar. Is that right, Jonathan? That's that's exactly what I was thinking. It looks like so, one of the characters drew them, so that's more artistic and conceptual. Okay, um, so is this a one-off uh, in the Watcher of the Damned World, or they're going to do future updates of the of the RPG? Uh, yes, actually, I I talked with Jonathan about. This. There's been personal things that have happened with us, but I'm actually ready to start writing the, since I finished this, the first manuscript of the second series, we have a, a, a five 
module series planned for this group. So uh, Escape from Purgatory is the first one. I uh, sort of just to delineate that world that they're in. And I have five modules in mind and Jonathan's the designer for that. And as long as he wants to work with me, I'm excited about it. I do have five uh, lined up to go and it will take them further and deeper into the world. The hope being that if you go through those five one-off modules and you meet these characters, you could actually jump off and just explore the world on your own with the books. And at that time, we'll have the bestiary come out with the monsters in it that they can play those alongside the other characters. And they'll be able to create their own wildland worlds as they go and explore the world of Watcher of the Damned. Okay. So for this for this game do you have um the monsters that you would need for the one shot because obviously the bestiary is not out yet is what you would need to have for random encounters in the one shot is there stuff already there to start with i think that the monsters because we're inside purgatory uh one of the reasons they have the cities built the way they do is to keep the monsters out so it was a convenient place to start since I don't have the bestiary drawn up yet. So in this this one shot, you won't be encountering probably the monsters themselves inside the city uh, because the, the, the whole city is constructed to try to keep the wildlands out. It has high, high walls and everything. Once they get outside and step outside the city, uh, we should, I think that I, I'm, I'm considering whether or not I need to make a mini bestiary or just go ahead and make the whole thing. And Jonathan, what's your advice on this? Should I just go ahead and drop the bestiary first? So we can make the modules and then do it. Um, I, I would probably, we, we could talk about that. But yeah, I would add that this adventure is, you know, it's, it's classic, like just running into bandits and town guards and getting into bar fights on your way out of the uh, city. So not too many monsters or anything like that. It's all human style NPCs. So speaking of NPCs, Rebecca, are any of the NPCs that we encounter in your game system actual characters from your books? Uh, yes. And one of the reasons I did that was because I had gotten so excited about drawing up a whole bunch of stuff that I ended up with Purgatory and Paradise, which is the, actually is designed to go with the system. Uh, the, there it is right there. And it's designed to go with the gaming system as an NPC book. But it was also a world guide for the... Uh, for the readers that come in in the middle of the series, maybe they want to say, oh, I've, I've missed this. So we have all the NPCs there. And yes, in the book, uh, technically through this series, you could meet any one of these characters in this TTRPG. So we do have them available. And there's actually 96 of characters and uh, world building and uh, all sorts of different things in there. And Jonathan, I think that you uh, talked about the fact that, yes, we wanted to make it to where they could have the NPCs that they wanted, but the NPCs are not the main focus. And you had a really interesting philosophy about this. We talked about not driving the, the game to play my story. It's allowing players to be themselves. And you had a really passionate uh, example of this, that this is not us telling a player how to play my game. This is allowing them to play the game for themselves. So if you want to tell people about that idea that you had for the MPP, that was because that really fits into me with what I was saying. And you did so much better a job of talking about it. Right. Well, it's like when you read a, through a book or novel, the characters in the book and story are not played by someone playing a TTRPG. So when you play a TTRPG, the part of the charm is that the players around the table are creating a character within that world. And we see this like with like like with Lord of the Rings or Star Wars that are, you know, there's very strong fictional characters that already exist, but no one's really playing those characters. They're playing their own story in a world that already 
um, has you know, has been written out. So it's possible to play in a world that's already created, um, even with powerful fictional characters. But the reason people come around the table is they want to create their own characters and tell their own story within a world. So I I, I encouraged in the writing, you know, Rebecca to make sure we keep the fictional carries characters in her book as NPCs that are aiding the player characters in the story so that the uh, fictional characters in the book do not overwhelm the player characters or, you know, kind of stand in the spotlight for too long. So more cameo and less um, yeah. real world. Okay. It, exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, that was my vision is that I, I didn't want the player characters to be overshadowed. Um, it's about playing the game and letting the story evolve on its own, but it does help to have fixtures of people, places, and things um, from the book. Okay. So as a designer, how do you create these immersive worlds um, for your players without stunting the role of the game masters when you're, who are going to be leading the games? Uh, what I typically did was whatever I wrote, I would cut it by 50%. <laughs> so if I wrote something about a person, place, or thing, I would edit it down to its leanest possible, uh, most user-friendly thing as possible. Because I think that any game master, any table might want to allow this NPC to evolve beyond what the book might say. And I think that's totally appropriate because that's why we play TTRPGs. Um, it, it's, it's okay to have the uh, book characters um, not take hold of the quest. It's okay for the book characters not to be the heroes because there needs to be another story and that's the story of the player characters. Okay. Um, has technology, you know, you've been designing games. Um, so has technology changed the way you see your players interfacing with these games? Because I know you run a lot of um, classes and, and, and groups and stuff as well. Uh, as far as technology, I mean, do you have any specifics on the technology? Since... Well, I mean, some people play entirely online with oh, the, the yeah. virtual tabletops, that sort of thing. Um, and just playing online in general, you lose some of that ambiance you get around a table where, you know, people are chugging their energy drinks or whatever and, and snacking on their Cheetos and vibing off of each other. Well, I can't believe I used that word in the sentence, but <laughs> like there's definitely a feel for an in-person game. But obviously, you know, sometimes you live maybe remotely where you can't get a game. So the only way you get to play is online. Do you think that changes how the players uh, engage? I, I do. And I, I would encourage everyone, including myself, play it in person as often as you can. Um, if online or virtual is the only way to play, then that's what you should go for. But uh, the, I mean, you're I mean, I, I use the word all the time, the, the human energy vibe that we get from around the table is incredibly powerful. And I think it only accelerates and accentuates your gameplay experience. Um, if you're gonna play Brutal Survivor or Watcher the Damned online, um, I would say go for it, you know, gather some people around, especially if you enjoy that particular kind of genre. Um, you can make the same references that you all get, uh, tell each other the good jokes, entertain each other with the pulpy action descriptions um and i think it's relatively easy it's 
it doesn't require uh since it's mostly theater of the mind and you know using 3d6 and action points you can get away with using heavy theater of the mind rather than a virtual tabletop like uh for a vtt vtt system okay um so the this game is obviously a con the engine was created specifically for this game and then more broadly can be used in other similar genres um do you think some genres are better suited for tabletop gaming than others or do you think uh anything you can imagine can be turned into a game i have wondered that i i think no matter what make sure your tabletop game has conflict there has to be a conflict um that conflict could be a a werewolf trying to infect you it could be a politician trying to bribe you but i still think that no matter at the end of the day you need some kind of dice pool system plus a point system and you need some you need a conflict in the game otherwise there's no real story okay so we've talked about you know this obviously is is an existing property so how did you keep the feel of her world while creating space for for the story to evolve past the novels uh, we stayed in. I think we stayed in very good communication during the creation process. It was like a good check-in every two weeks, um, uh, with making sure that you know I was honoring her her property. Um, and I I think it also was combined with Rebecca's excitement for the project and her investment in the project that that was a neat that was a much needed ingredient to make sure that recipe turned out well. Because um, if I had not checked in with her and gone too far in the creation process without consulting her, I think I would have gone off base and, uh, you know, frustration could have inevitably happened. And also, I think um, as an author, you're already like Rebecca's already built this world. But when you go to turn it into a tabletop gaming system, I think and I think she did a good job with this, just cooperating and trimming down the storyline so that player characters and game masters can have an immersive experience but also still create their own story in the world well and this okay. is this, i wanted to say because this is where jonathan really shown so much for me because it's, it's easy when to just check in once every couple of weeks when you trust a game designer i trust jonathan because he not only had a philosophy when he came in it wasn't just oh i'm gonna make this for you just tell me what i'll and pay me he has an idea he has a vision of what he wants tabletop gaming to be and that 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 point of the theater of the mind of creating a world and teaching people how to do it this this uh property that we're using right now as it leads to the fourth arc which is the greater ttrpg that we're gonna have that springboards into that fourth arc that we're going to be making. So, so this is sort of that introduction that for all the chance for us to work together. But it was so easy because he knows how to trim down. You can tell by just listening to him talk. I'm like beep, 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 everything, and I go off in this direction, and I go off in that direction, and I'm so excited, and I talk for 30 minutes or whatever. Jonathan knew how to cut right to what we need for the game, but he was able to do it in such a way that I didn't feel like, oh, he hates me. I, you know, jump in a lake or something else. In the state able to take what I loved best about, about my own series and create this TTRPG that other people would love to play it. 
so they could have a world to play. And this sort of takes me back to when Blaine Pardo took an interest in this series. And for those of you who don't know who Blaine Pardo is, he is was the writer for Battletech. And is very, very much into the tabletop, very big in the tabletop gaming industry. When he read the book, he gave it five stars. And he said, this would make a fantastic tabletop role-playing game. And I have a lot of people in the industry. And I said, I have a designer. His name is Jonathan Harden. And I would love for you to look at this work. But he thought the world also would translate well. I love Jonathan so much. I'm sitting here talking to Blaine Pardon. I'm like, Jonathan is my designer. He made this incredible work for me. And this, this acknowledgement that this world could make this thing, I, he, Blaine thought it was going to be a, an actually a really big deal once we get this, this, the, the series completely finished. And so just having that confirmation from a person that's really huge going, yes, this is going to make a great tabletop RPG and seeing what, what Jonathan did is such a professional, he made me look good. That was what I was really excited about because that's hard for me to do sometimes. So I would, Jonathan just knocked it out of the park with us. He was so easy to work with. It was incredible. He kept his word and he made me something beautiful that when Blaine Pardo looked at everything, he was like, this is going to be great. And I was like, yeah, I know. Jonathan helped me. Thank you. That is, that is a, a good compliment. So um, normally, uh, Jonathan, we would ask our authors if they're, you know, about their games or their books being translated into games. But since you create the games, have any of your independent properties in the form of games been novelized by actual authors who just loved it so much? Oh, I would say not. <laughs> if they approached you and said, I like this brutal engine, I want to do X, Y, or Z with it, would you let them? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Okay. Well, if that ever happens, we'll have to have you back because the oh, sure. you know it's it's always interesting to look at the world from the reverse side too, sometimes yeah. to see the other side. <laughs> For sure. Um so for the, the brutal engine system, is that um, something that is, you know, someone could else could come and license as well from you? Yes, I would be open to that. Okay. Um, so Rebecca, when we do the links for all of this, um, and we'll obviously we're going to link to your um, to your website and stuff, is there a suggested reading order in there for people that say, this game has got me so intrigued, I want to read the books first? Do you have a reading list for them, like a reading order yes, on your actually, website? Yes. yes, we have it on the website. This is book one, two, three, four, five, and six that are numbered uh, in Watcher of the Damned. It is a sequential story. So you would come in with Transmutation Texas, then Six Gun Shiva, Babe's Blood, uh, Hellraisers and Heartbreakers, Purgatory and Paradise, and Lone Star Libre, which has the luchador part of it, which we haven't yet gotten into with the game, but it will be there. And uh, so we have that. Uh, you can also, at any time, if you do come in uh, or you have questions about it, you can pick up the World Building Guide, which is Purgatory Paper, which is these uh, actually the seventh books in the series, and, of course, our tabletop RPG to play the game, which is System and Star. You can't assume that just because there's a numeric order to the thing that you watch them in that. I mean, Star Wars taught us four, five, and six, and then one, two, and three. Don't so that's why we ask. It's Star so there... <laughs> Okay, okay. So if, if you like this this world enough that you want to read the books before you play the game, go ahead. So this game, um, Jonathan, how many is the because you know we're getting towards the end, but how many is an ideal uh, table for this game? Some games require more than others. Some have maxed out. 
I have found four to be the perfect number. Yay. Okay. So four plus the game master is the ideal table for this system. Indeed. Okay. So, uh, you know, some people, one of the things they like most about uh, like D and D for instance, is when they get to be a Druid so they can have a pet. Is that the kind of thing they could do uh, in your system or would that just be set dressing that they add to the theater of the mind? I would allow it. I would. Uh, okay. Yeah, I think, I think maybe add one extra damage point per pet, but your pet can be lost just like any other loot. Oh my gosh. All right. All right. So you heard it here first people. All right. So uh, before we wrap this up, was there anything about escape from purgatory or the brutal engine system that we didn't ask that you want to, guys want to tell us? I think that it just, first of all, just being able to be on here and saying, I love you. If you're a player, Thank you for keeping on playing. Thank you for keeping on doing this. We want you to be able to keep playing games that you love. Just because OGL came out and kind of threw everybody into a frenzy, there are independent players out here who love what you're doing, want you to keep playing the way that you want to play it. And we have items for you. And I think that Purgatory Papers and System and Star fit in with that, with the world of Watcher of the Damned and with the world of players who love gaming, tabletop gaming. All right. So this is the part of the interview, dear listener, where I remind you to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right books. It really does matter. Uh, Jonathan, on your website where you also sell it on Sojourner, uh, the Sojourner shop, can they leave reviews there too? Yes, you may. Okay. And are you also on DriveThruRPG and the other um, RPG type uh, online stores? Yeah, Rebecca has a, uh, she's linked the Watcher of the Damned uh, module, one-shot module to drive through RPG. Yes, and also at Big Geek Forum style, uh, where they have a, the entire set, including the books. And also are going to be opening probably a shop on Fund My Comic, which is another independent platform. And this has become a little important as we go that we uh, support not only indie creators, but the platforms who put a lot out there to try to make sure that we have a place to always put our stuff. So please go to Jonathan's site, go to, um, you know, uh, Jonathan Sojourner's Awake or to Big Geek Emporiums where it is. And be on the lookout for Fund My Comic as it comes up. And yes, we do have the module also on drive through RPG. All right. Outstanding. All right, Jonathan, as we wrap this up, can you tell listeners and viewers how they can find you? Yes, you can find me at www.sojournersawake.com. All my socials are there as well as a online shop and a place to listen to my podcast. And I just wanted to say thank you so much. This has been a pleasant interview. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about your podcast since that didn't come up? Yeah, it started, uh, my friend said, hey, in 2020, we're going to keep on meeting. So I had to download this thing called Zoom and we ended up doing a podcast and I found that I really loved editing it and adding sound effects and music. So I turned it into a little art project. It's called Sojourners Awake, and it follows the stories of heroes in the world of Bonsarl. Cool. I will link to that in the show notes as well. Dear listener, I might give it a shot myself. And all right, you, Miss R.H. Snow, which is what you publish as, how can listeners find you on the Wild Wild Interwebs? Uh, they can find me at .page slash rh snow that's flow dot page at r slash rh snow and that will take you to my link page where i have all of my socials including our uh 
YouTube channel, our podcast that we have with our mini series on it from the first book and uh, all so much more. And also our entire set on Amazon on Big Geek Emporiums as well. And um, we do, I think I need, I need to make sure I get a link. I believe I have a link to Sojourners Awake on there and I'm going to be including that as well. And um, just a big thank you to everybody. This has been such a wonderful show in the first place. And you were so kind to me because I know I had to keep leaving to go check and make sure that my world hadn't blown away yet. We actually got a tornado watch right in the middle of this interview. <laughs> and that's why I disappeared suddenly. I had to go make sure we were still alive. So um, I really appreciate you guys. Uh, look at my page and you can also find me at watcherthedam.com. All right. You can find us at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. Again, blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. We have a Facebook group where all the shenanigans happen over at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. We have a website at anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades, where you can support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. You can help keep the lights on. These episodes aren't free to produce, and we appreciate every penny you throw towards covering the overhead. Uh, I'd say we're leave a light on for you, but we're too dang cheap. So in the meantime, you can support the show more directly over at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Handley. Be sure to put in the comment section that is for the podcast. And I promise I will keep my co-hosts, Doc Seska and Nick Garber, duly caffeinated. They will drink until their liver explodes. With that being said, thank you for uh, coming on, Jonathan and Rebecca. Thank you so much, J.R. And thank you, dear listener, dear viewer, for spending some of your precious time with us. For the absentee Nick Garber and Doc Seska, this was J.R. Hanley, and we are the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom.